0: and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 109 of the Energy Talks podcast. And today, this is a topic, well, we're going to nerd out on oil demand modeling. Now, this sounds like a really esoteric kind of, who's going to be interested in this aside from three economists, you know, in universities scattered across Canada? Well, there's a very good reason why Canadians should be really paying attention to this. And the reason is that the oil and gas industry has asked the various levels of government, particularly the Canadian government, for tens of billions of dollars in subsidies to pay for decarbonization, principally carbon capture utilization and storage, but other things as well. The oil sands alone wants $50 billion. Now, we get really excited in this country about many topics that don't cost $50 billion of taxpayers' money. But this one is flying under the radar. And so I'm going to talk to Jeanetta McKenzie, who's a senior analyst at the Pemba Institute, and author of The Future of Oil in the Energy Transition. It basically takes a uh, reviews modeling from the International Energy Agency, Rystad Energy, Bloomberg, and oil majors BP and Equinor, and b- very interesting observations uh, that has implications for the Canadian industry as well. So welcome to the interview, Janetta.
1: Hi, Markham, thanks for having me. Now. Let's put some,
0: let's first of all, before we get into the meat of the, of your analysis, I want to talk about modeling because here's the situation. The oil sands companies, which I know the best, I know for a fact that every one of those big companies has either done internal modeling or they've contracted with external firms to model their competitiveness out to 2050 and beyond. Every company is convinced that they can compete in a 25 million barrel a day global market. Currently, it's 100 million barrels a day. So imagine if you have 100 million barrels of supply chasing 25 million barrels of demand by 2050, prices aren't going to be $100 a barrel. It might not even be $50 a barrel. But the oil sands companies think that they can drive their production costs down so low and their capital requirements on a sustaining basis are so low that they can be competitive. On the basis of that modeling, they have gone to the government, which is, you know, the Canadian government has already said it's going to put in place an oil and gas emissions cap. And they've said, the only way we can, we can comply with any kinds of emissions reduction is with carbon capture and storage and, here's our plan, it's gonna cost $75 billion, and we want you to put in $50 billion of this. And I know uh, that the federal government has not done the same modeling. So imagine if you were a business person, and you were being asked to spend $50 billion, and you hadn't even done the basic due diligence, the analysis, the market uh, analysis was required to tell you whether that's a good investment or not. You know, if those companies are not competitive, then all of that infrastructure, all of the CO2 pipelines, all of the carbon sequestration fields, all of that stuff becomes a stranded asset. It becomes basically worthless. This is the question, this is the framework in which we have to have this conversation. The oil companies know or have a very good idea about whether they'll be around, and we don't. But we're being asked to foot the bill. Am I? This is my take on it. Would you agree or disagree, Janetta?
1: Well, I think there's a couple important things to start with. The first is about what these scenarios can and cannot do for us as we're doing our policy planning and as private sector firms are making their decisions. These types of scenarios, uh, long term out to 2050, they're not precise predictions of what will happen certainly at a given time. But they're models based on different sets of assumptions about changes in policy, technology development, and kind of global economic trends. Uh, but what we're seeing in a lot of these models is when these changes are, these changes in policy and technology and economics are assumed to accelerate in line with announced climate pledges around the world, we do see a pretty significant, we can expect a pretty significant decline in demand from now until 2050. And even under some of the least ambitious assumptions about economic and technological development, we're still seeing a plateau and decline in these scenarios, although it's much gentler. Um, And, you know, we don't have access to a lot of the input data that a lot of specific firms are using to develop their sets of assumptions, so they may be operating on on very different assumptions than the IEA or Bloomberg or even BP and Equinor, although it is important to to note that uh, both BP and Equinor do uh, forecast in their scenarios a decline in oil demand that is reasonably in line with what we're seeing from other uh, really credible organizations like the IEA. the second is, is I want to pick up on something you said, that Canada doesn't really have a specific uh, net zero pathway out to 2050, and uh, our own scenario, we have all these global scenarios, and those are great, but we need one for Canada. And, and I very much agree uh, with that. And the Canada Energy Regulator is currently developing uh, a net zero scenario for Canada for its next energy futures report, which, which should be out sometime next year, which I think will be a really critical piece of knowledge uh, for both government and the private sector to sort of uh, calibrate their models and their assumptions with what the Canada Energy Regulator is doing.
0: Two points on that. The Canada Energy Regulator, I'm not sure that they're doing exactly the kind of modeling that I talked about. Uh, So we'll see what what that modeling looks like, but I suspect it's maybe not exactly what's, what's required. And secondly, the government is already putting in place it tax incentives and other subsidies before they have the modeling. So we've already got a 50% uh, carbon capture and storage uh, uh, tax incentive uh, that's been announced. And we know that the the industry is pressuring government to cough up a lot more, many, many billions of dollars more in by the, the next budget, by, by the budget of 2023. And again, that will happen before the modeling is complete. So, even though the modeling is taking place, it may not come in time to inform policymakers in the way that we need it to. And it doesn't look like the I mean, the federal government is just in a in a in a tizzy. you know it's it's announced last year, the prime minister announced the oil and gas emissions cap at cop twenty six. And apparently with, uh, so I'm told by my sources in Ottawa, you know, without a lot of preparation, it was one of those off-the-cuff extemporaneous kinds of things. And in in the uh, intervening year, the government has been scrambling to try to figure out a way to design an emissions cap, to get industry buy-in on an emissions cap, which it hasn't got yet, and to make this thing work. And it's just, it, now it's feeling the political pressure of its own commitments. So it, it's facing these politi- the political impetus to act quickly, but it would do if it does that it would do so in the absence of credible analysis upon which to base the policy that's that's my real that's what i'm uh, the argument here and given the the numbers the, you know the dollars that are, are potentially involved i think it's absolutely critical and that's why i was so interested in your analysis because it you do talk about you know the demand for oil uh the in, potential impact on the oil sands which you know makes up 60% of the oil production in the in and 11% of national emissions. So this is no small no small matter we're talking about here. So let's maybe back up a little bit and give us a tell us what you did in your review of the modeling from these other agencies and, and companies and how you went about writing your report.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the approach uh, in this report, and this analysis, was to look across different types of institutions and see what their long-term scenarios were telling us about oil demand. So not just research organizations like Bloomberg New Energy Finance, not just oil companies like BP and Equinor, but those plus the International Energy Agency kind of bring together and see if there are some trends converging from these different types of institutions about what the world may look like in the next 10 20 30 years and we you know we really did find that we're beginning to see these trends of long term declining oil demand converge across different types of institutions and based on those different sets of assumptions that i talked about before the pace and the scale of that decline depends and there's not agreement uh, between these institutions. But, you know, the lines kind of follow the same trajectory. And we still see a plateau and decline of oil demand.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you've got a couple of great charts in uh, in this report. Uh, and anybody who wants to check it out can go to uh, the Pembin Institute's website and, and find the report. But here's the one that really uh, caught my attention. So we know that right now oil sands production is about three and a half million barrels a day. It's going to rise. And we've had estimates for the increase from three and a half million to 4 million by 2030 uh, IHS market uh Kevin Byrne now under S&P Glo- global just released a report and in fact you can hear my interview with him on on uh on one of the podcast episodes uh it's go- so it's going to rise and we're going to be at 4 million barrels a day uh very shortly in the IEA stated policy scenario that production basically plateaus out to 2050. It drops a little bit, you know, a couple of hundred thousand barrels a day, but it plateaus. But under the announced pledges scenario, so if governments go ahead with the things they've already announced, demand drops by almost half. That's no small matter. Now imagine if we had paid Fifty billion dollars. We, you know, the oil sands built out all of the infrastructure, the pipeline that they're talking about from, you know, northern Alberta down to Cold Lake. All of that, and suddenly there is only half as much oil, you know, or you know, half as much oil production to support carbon capture. That that infrastructure is twenty billion dollars wasted, you know, roughly. So tell us about that. What it? What's the likelihood? Of the announced pledges scenario coming to fruition, and and affecting the oil uh, sands uh, uh, decline. And where did you get those numbers? That's, I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. Where, if you if you would if you would mind?
1: Yeah, for sure. So these all come from the International Energy's uh, most recent World Energy Outlook for 2022. And the IEA. This is not a prescriptive. Uh, like this is not the IEA telling Canada this is how much oil you should produce. Uh, but what this is, is it's projected as a reasonable level of decline of, for production in the announced pledges scenario as a result of all of these different types of global changes. And they do this for a bunch of other countries as well. Um, and in terms of the likelihood of, of this scenario coming true, well, again, these are, these are scenarios. So we're likely not going to follow this line exactly. Um, and the assumption underlying the announced pledges scenario is that countries around the world meet their current announced climate pledges on time and in full. And that's a pretty big ask, but it is a good look at the effectiveness of the policies that have been announced around the world. And, you know, there's a lot of time between now and 2050. There's there's almost 30 years in there. So there will be some policy ambition that is greater than we expected and less than we expected on a global level. but. Based on what we see now, what we have seen announced, this is a reasonable, uh, projected as a reasonable level of decline in production for Canada.
0: So here's the X factor in this analysis. We have the stated policy scenario, and and there are, I mean, the big the big uh, consumers of oil, uh, China, uh, well, Asia Pacific, uh, Europe, uh, North America are all you know taking actions to uh, on their stated policies, uh, on the implementation of them then we have the announced policy scenario but the x factor is what more might come out of this what are we going to see at cop 28 what are we going to see at cop 29 because the pressure to to for more policy intervention to uh, reduce fossil fuel uh, consumption is hardly abated this is hardly plateaued i mean there's still lots and lots of political pressure uh, on various countries uh, to to lower it so What's your take on the likelihood that there will be more announced policies yet in the future?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, Obviously, we can't know exactly what what is going to happen at COP28, COP29. But what we have seen is a really significant increase in net zero targets announced by countries and specific legislation passed in countries, especially in the last three years. So this global policy uh, momentum is really growing, and and I, I agree with you. I think it will continue. That ball will continue to roll. This this is not an issue that is going away. And there's a lot of attention paid to the progress at uh, the annual ops. And most of the most of the scenarios that I looked at for this report and others as well update every year. And when you look at the IEA's, for instance, report this year. Compared to last year, or even BP and Equinor's, you do see the effect of that additional climate pol- of that additional climate policy action, in that you know those lines come down a little bit. This was the first time uh, in the IEA stated policies scenario that we did see a plateau in in fossil fuel use across fossil fuels in the near future
0: now you gave three good reasons why we should see uh falling demand for oil uh between now and 2050 and then the number two was the one we're talking about now which is policy Mm -hmm. and i just finished an interview this morning with samantha gross from uh, uh from brookings institute about energy security and that has emerged just in 2022 primarily because of russia's invasion of ukraine in a way that probably hasn't filtered into modeling yet. You know, it's just it's too early. But now, you know, uh, regions like Europe for example, their response to the to the invasion of Ukraine and the cutoff of their of their gas and then the 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 fact that their oil imports from Russia are are imperiled, uh their response has been to say okay, we're going to electrify quicker. You know, they got their RE, the re-power EU plan that was announced in May. And so they say, okay, great. You want to cut off our oil? Well, we'll electrify transportation just quicker than we had originally expected. And I don't think those policies yet have found their way into modeling. I don't even think they're in the, I would bet they're not in the advanced, uh, sorry, the announced pledges scenarios yet. It's just, it's just been too uh, too soon. And so I and then what we see is knock on effects, because now we're seeing Asia Pacific say, oh, hang on a second. And now energy security is an issue for us because if they, they can do it to Europe, well, what can they do to us? We need to electrify faster. And then, of course, you've got the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, kind of the same different impetus, but 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 in the same direction. And that is only got announced in in, in August and, and isn't in, I'm sure, in any of these scenarios. So I I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that already in the last six months, events that we've seen argue for much stricter uh, policy that will accelerate the uh, decline of oil demand uh, maybe faster than we thought.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I just uh, I'll issue a slight correction there. So a lot of these policies did make their way into the most recent IEA modeling um, because it came out just about a month and a half ago. Um, so some of that and the. Uh, US IRA was identified as a really key policy piece by the IEA as well, and we really have se- seen this really tumultuous year in global energy, and we'll likely see a lot of that volatility in the next year or two as well. But I, I agree, this is another variable that may actually accelerate some of these demand trends as countries work to diversify their energy sources and improve their energy security. And you know the, the types of short-term crises that we're in right now are, are difficult to take into account, and we may see something like some that kind of volatility in the future. But if global climate action and technological development continues on the same pace that it has in the last few years, and if countries continue to recognize that sort of the best way to enhance their energy security is to diversify their energy sources and pursue electrification on a much larger and more rapid scale, then then some of those trends are not only likely to fold, but accelerate even further.
0: Well, thank you for clarifying the point about which of those um, uh, policies made it into the into the modeling. Uh, my, I was based, I was, you know, assuming, and we know uh, that that's a dangerous thing. So, thanks for that correction. The the, the second, the first. Uh, point in your analysis is the rapid fall in demand for uh, oil for road transport. Now, I interviewed uh, a few months ago. You interviewed David Doherty from Bloomberg NEF, who uh, who was they had modeled this last year. They were they were just updating their mo- modeling when I when I talked to him, and and Bloomberg NEF uh, has a uh, a decline down from a hundred million barrels a day. It uh, goes down by about 36 million uh, barrels by a day by by 2050 if I remember correctly, uh, and on the road transports it's really a big decline. They they were expecting the electrification of transportation to accelerate very significantly, and he made the point, that, and and I and the and I've interviewed the EV folks at BNEF as well, is that every year they underestimate. Every year, they have to they have to revise their estimates estimates because transportation is electrifying faster than they anticipate, and and so we shouldn't assume uh, a, a that you know that these uh, modeling is static because it will it will change due to what's happening in the in the auto on the auto industry, and then the other thing is, while road transport will go down, aviation and plastics will go up. So let's deal with road transportation first. Uh, What conclusions did you come to after reviewing the modeling uh, around this issue?
1: Yeah, I'm sure that I I have many of the same conclusions as your chat with Bloomberg NEF, who does some of the landmark modeling on uh, EV Outlooks in the world. And... You know, road transport makes up a huge amount of what we use oil for today. In 2019, it was uh, uh, responsible for about 40% of oil demand. So how fast we take up EVs and how fast they are deployed globally really, really matters for when we're looking at long-term demand trends. And so far, or at least in the last few years, we really have underestimated the uptake of those electric vehicles globally. And sales continue to increase, uh, continue to increase through the pandemic Um, and all announced pledges or net zero scenarios uh, assume a really fundamental shift towards electric vehicles. And obviously there's a couple different factors there in terms of you know being able to source materials and time and critical minerals and uh, some other supply chain issues along uh, the EV supply chain. But the really critical underpinning here is a couple things. First, that the cost of these vehicles is coming down, both in purchase price and on a total cost of ownership basis. Many of them are already cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles. And then second, the development of supportive policy, so electric vehicle sales standards, how those develop will be really, really critical in the next few years. And even on the private sector side, we're seeing a lot of auto firms commit to pretty ambitious phasing in of of EV sales and EV production uh, sort of on a voluntary basis because they see that this is where the demand is going to grow and they want to take advantage of that. So this is an area that will be really, really important to watch uh, in the next 5, 10, 20 years, but the trends are so far encouraging. Um, and it is encouraging that we keep underestimating how fast this is growing as well. It is it is usually, in, in my opinion, good to be conservative um, on these uh, modeling scenarios. It's nice to overshoot. Uh,
0: a couple of points on on data here. Um, I was reading a Reuters story from a couple of months ago, uh, where out to twenty thirty, the auto industry writ large. Okay, so that's the the OEMs. That's their supply chains. That's critical minerals. All of that. They've already committed one to spend one point two trillion dollars by twenty thirty to uh, speed up the the transition uh, from internal combustion engines to manufacturing electric vehicles. I mean, if, if if you know you put your money where your mouth is, then th- th- you know they've committed, and and so the auto industry is all in on electric. The second thing is, I just this morning, I was interviewing a, a, a Bloomberg NEF analyst about commodity prices, because, you know, I mean, there's so much buzz about, uh, you know, rising commodity prices and lithium shortages and what that's doing to battery prices. But the truth is, it's only going up, it only went up 7%. It didn't go drop as they were expecting, but it went up prices, battery prices went up 7%. And she says, by 2026, we expect that it will start falling again. And actually, that's not what she said. What she said was, by 2026, we expect that battery prices, prices for a battery pack per kilowatt hour will breach the $100 mark, which mm-hmm. is price, which is assumed to be price parity with internal combustion engine cars. They originally predicted it that it will happen in 2024. Rising commodity prices disrupted that. Now it's going to be 2026. Well, it's only two years. You know, this is not the the the, the huge you uh, know crisis for the industry that that many have have argued that it is, and what that suggests is that once we hit price parity, like all you, the sticker price in the lot, combined with total uh, cost of ownership being so much lower, it's game over for the internal combustion engine.
1: Yeah, I, I think that those trends are really, really encouraging. We also need to pay close attention to improving our charging infrastructure in Canada and around the world to make sure that we have the electricity uh, to meet the demand of all these new EVs. But that price point is really, really critical. It's it's one of the last sort of accessibility bulwarks for electric vehicles, um, that they're just at, at a point of purchase, still not quite uh, on the same cost level as some of the internal combustion engines. but you know the, as I said, the trends are moving in the right direction. And it does also speak to how you know these changes in policy, technology and kind of the global marketplace are already happening. they're they're gaining momentum. um and so we're we we, we are seeing that those things are definitely all working together to sort of create an environment that is quite uh, good for EVs and good for other types of uh, really important climate policy and climate movement.
0: Now, I want to talk about the demand for plastics because, yes, Bloomberg and assumed that, you know, the, in their modeling, plastics uh, continues. Actually, the, the demand for petroleum, uh, for oil to go into pla- uh, petrochemicals is actually quite steep. I was kind of surprised. But here's a wrinkle, and this gets to my argument for why we need to model. The oil sands uh, produces ultra-heavy, sour crude. That doesn't compete with light crude. It doesn't even compete with medium crude. It's a beast all onto its own. It has its own market. It's, it's about 10 million barrels, about 10% of the global market. 5.5 million barrels of that demand is down in the, in the United States. Uh, but here's on the plastic side, China has built petrochemical complexes, uh, refining and petrochemical together that use heavy crude oil because it's cheap. And and so there, on the one hand, yes, there's some downward pressure for uh, heavy crude oil that would be turned into gasoline and diesel, you know, and we already we've already seen uh, gasoline has peaked, uh, I think, in 2019 in the U.S. and diesel is predicted to peak in a, in a couple of years. So demand's going to go down there. But what happens to plastics? Heavy heavy crude for plastics, and that has that has all sorts of implications for the competitiveness of the oil sands out to 2050. And we, unless you have somebody who knows the, the heavy crude markets and knows, you know, global refining demands and trends and all of that, until that modeling gets done, uh, we have no idea. I mean, because you can make an argument, you can make an argument that with the demand from the plastic side, uh, from the petrochemical side for heavy crude, it might not be as affected as much as the light sweet crude. And therefore, the oil sands companies, their their modeling might very well be accurate. That's entirely possible. But until we do the modeling, we don't know because we 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 can't test their assumptions. They don't release their models publicly. we We can't have Dr. Chris Bataille go through their models and test, you know, talk about their assumptions and whether they're conservative or whether they're, you know, out on a limb and And so I think this is this is the sleeper here, the demand for plastics. would Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I, I would. And it's also a much more uncertain area across the scenarios that I've looked at. Uh, there's less agreement on what the demand for petrochemicals and for, uh, for plastics is going to do in the, in the next 30 years. Petrochemicals are likely to become a bigger share of oil demand, even as demand decreases overall. Oil companies are definitely paying attention to those trends. A lot of them are investing quite heavily uh, in that side of their business because they expect that it will not only remain stable, but uh, actually increase going out to 2050. So certainly, you know, what an oil company produces uh, in 2030, 2040, 2050 may be quite different than what they produce today. Um, And the design and implementation of policies around the world that uh, eliminate plastic use or mandate recycling targets will be really important to watch in the next few years, um, as those policies will really help dictate how the demand for plastics evolves. We are seeing in some regions that it appears to be uh, that perhaps plastics demand may be peaking or approaching peaking. Uh, Like in the European Union, Canada uh, is phasing in its uh, rule for no more single use plastic bags, I think starting in the next uh, few months. So there are signs that those policies are Going to be coming out more and more in the next few years. But yes, this is this will likely be a pretty big part of oil companies' uh, products over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, and you're likely to see, I think, a more diverse product offering uh, from the oil companies uh, going forward.
0: Right. And there are some trends here that are just beginning to, to get started that could have a, a, an Im- impact on a demand for plastics. Now, I interviewed uh, last week uh, uh, Gillieran from Ocean Legacy Foundation, and they have developed uh, a process and a business model to recycle marine uh, refuse plastic. So this is the stuff that, you know, it's old netting and and other, you know, uh, fishing equipment. It's the kind of stuff that washes up on the shore of British Columbia, you know, all the time on the shoreline. And, 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 and you know, this is a problem all over the world. Uh, plastic in the ocean. And, and there's a big movement on now and lots of policy to support it. And, and now, you know, it's beginning to see some capital uh, flow into it to to collect that plastic and recycle it. So we, you know, prevent we don't need we don't need to produce virgin plastic uh, as as much. And who knows where that's going to go? i mean that could be a little thing or because of the urgency of the situation it could become a a big thing and then it it has an impact on global plastic production 10 20 30 years down the road and then that has an uh, has implications for the canadian oil sands again until we can model we don't we can't really say anything intelligent about how these kinds of trends are likely to affect uh, competitiveness of canadian oil and of, of canadian oil companies
1: yeah, for sure. And yeah, the the plastics really is an out is really is an area of uncertainty in a lot of these scenarios. And it would be great to get more Canada specific data and modeling on that, whether it's coming from the oil companies themselves or coming from an independent organization, sort of the role of diversification uh, in these companies business plans would be really would be really interesting to see. Um, but it is it is also um, a very popular type of policy. A lot of these plastics recycling mandates or uh, eliminating these single-use plastics because there are other effects for biodiversity, for pollution. So it's something that is front, more front of mind for a lot of people than a lot of uh, some of the more wonkier uh, climate policies. So they're they're generally quite popular and I expect we'll see a lot more of those get, uh, get implemented in the next 10, 20 years across the world.
0: Right, agreed. So... To wrap up our conversation, Janetta, um what kind of takeaway should listeners uh you know, what, what should they take away from this conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple kind of key findings to take away. First, models are models and scenarios are really important to help us get an idea of the general trends that may result from policy and technology and economic development, but they're not exact predictions of exactly how things will go.
0: They're not forecasts.
1: Exactly. They're not going right. to tell you this is where we will be definitely in 2030. Uh, but acknowledging these kind of this convergence of general trends uh, is really important for investment decisions in Canada in the Canadian oil and gas sector. These are a tool in the toolbox for firms that do want to remain competitive as the global marketplace shrinks, because what how much oil will need and what we will be using that oil for is likely to change in the coming years, possibly quite drastically, um, especially under the announced pledges or net zero scenarios. So as the market for oil shrinks and our trading partners pursue their own decarbonization goals, you know Canada needs to prepare for that shrinking and changing global market by aiming to be not only cost competitive, but carbon competitive as well. Because That is, this is not something that's going away. This is going to be something that importers are going to be looking at when they buy products or buy things from Canada. Uh, For instance, the European Union is is quite far along in developing some mechanisms on how to assess the carbon intensity of of some of their imported uh, products. And the other kind of second thing I would say is, you know, the clean energy transition may not be linear going forward. We may have to navigate temporary obstacles like the current energy supply crisis or a little bit of policy backtrack in some areas of the world. But what these scenarios really, really tell me is that a fundamental shift really appears to be underway and we'll still need an abundance of energy to power our economies to 2050 and beyond. But the attitudes on what type of energy that, appear, that should be appear to have shifted. And this is being reflected in government policies. I,
0: just before I let you go, I want to add another little wrinkle here. And I know I I, I, I haven't read your report in detail, so maybe you address this, but I suspect not. And that is the importance of modeling to counter narratives or as part of of the energy narrative and energy discourse in Canada. And let me explain a little bit. As the uh, the oil and gas energy, uh, sorry, the oil and gas industry has a, and has had for years, a very well-developed public relations and narrative management plan. You know, how we talk about energy and how we think about energy and the effect that has on politics and then knock on effect on policy, they understand you have to manage that. You just don't leave it to chance. So, no surprise. Uh, After Russia invaded Ukraine, right away, there was a flood of, you know, the the industry, their trade associations, their astroturf organizations, their, their boosters on social media were all out in full cry. We need to invest in LNG for Europe. We need to invest in more oil production. We need to invest in export, more oil exports. And your analyses like these counter that narrative. You know, why would we look at uh, a major expansion, you know, of a million or two million or three million barrels a day of the oil sands when I'm looking at these scenarios that suggest that would be a very bad policy decision? That would be a very, you know, that would be very risky. Why would we be, invest in 50 to 75 year infrastructure like pipelines, you know, when demand could, you know, looking at your your charts? But you need this kind of analysis to counter that kind of narrative management, that kind of, you know, uh, the, the kind of politics that show up in in the energy conversation in Canada, which is so dominated by oil and gas. I mean, I my mean, God, every time we turn around, you know, it's, it's Alberta complaining that, you know, Ottawa is trying to stifle oil and gas exports and kill the industry, That. You know that's eight seventy five percent of the the conversation we have in Canada instead of talking about renewables and all the other things that we should be the energy of the future basically. so' I, I, I'll, I'll ask you the question if you have any thoughts on that or if your your uh, report uh, touched on it at all.
1: Yeah this isn't in the report but i think the report has a a uh, kind of good conclusion which is that this is why it's important to have a bunch of modeling from a bunch of different institutions um you know i looked at uh, modeling from oil companies themselves the international energy agency bloomberg and we really do see these trends beginning to converge and the more we see trends converge you know the more Likely, or the more uh, comfort we can take that our assumptions are are correct, or more correct, or more likely to to happen. So in that sense, yes, I I think it's always good to have more modeling and more scenarios for things like this. I am quite interested to see what the CER net zero scenario looks like, and and what the implications are for for Canadian energy going forward. And sort of the other thing is that you know there is a role for fossil fuels in all of these scenarios going forward. It is. But there is also uh, an agreement that decline is on the horizon. The pace and scale of that decline remains to be seen. But if global climate action, the EV revolution, and certain assumptions in plastics and petrochemicals do continue on these trends that a lot of different institutions are taking into account, then we can expect this type of decline.
0: Well, I would agree with that. And uh <laughs> I, I, what's making me chuckle is I'm thinking of uh, former Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who used to who used to uh, talk in public with great confidence that you know don't worry about it you know when twenty the IEA's uh, net zero forecast is there's still going to be forty million barrels of demand well that's plenty of oil demand you know not thinking of course that you have a hundred million barrels of supply chasing forty million barrels of demand what does that do to prices. What does that do to the structure of your industry? It's a much more complex question than that silly, you know, sort of uh, political message. And uh, so anyway, I guess that's that uh, apropos of nothing, but that's what your comments reminded me of. So this is a fascinating discussion, Jeanette, and I'm going to have you back once the CER uh, uh, releases its net zero modeling, because we need to talk about this issue more in this country And in particular, because, you know, the industry is trying to, you know, get its fingers into our pocketbooks. So uh, thank you very much for this. And we'll look forward to our next chat.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Markham.